This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you by the amazing folks over at Gamesurplus.com. They are the living embodiment of putting the customer first and going the extra mile to ensure that your experience with them is the very best that it can be. Whether it's the free shipping at $90 or the care and diligence taken when carefully packaging up your order, Game Surplus does everything that they can do to make sure that your next purchase from them is certainly not your last. So go check them out over at Gamesurplus.com and mention Heavy Cardboard when you do. Heavy Cardboard, Episode 77, PAX Renaissance. Coming to you from Renaissance Europe, or, you know, Denver, Colorado, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. I'm Ash Jackson. And I'm Amanda. Yeah, so Ash decided to join us on this episode. Hey, everybody. So welcome to the show, Ash. Thank you. Well, I guess welcome back. I mean, you've been on the podcast before. I've actually been counting. I think I've been on four times now in the last year uh, since I started with last year's HeavyCon recap. Wow, you're basically essentially a regular at this point. Uh, I don't know. I I think I'm certainly a friend of the show, if nothing else. I I think that's a fair way to put it. Sure. Sure. All right, so we just got back from Origins a few days ago. How was that? I didn't actually get to go or get to watch any of it. I was moving while Origins was happening. So, uh, advantage us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, moving. I'm at that point in my life now to where uh, whenever a friend tells me they're moving, I'm like, hey, go hire movers and good luck. If you need moral support, beer, or food, I can help with that, but I'm... I'm done lifting heavy boxes. I'll just take board games here in a week or so. Yeah, that that that's fair. That seems reasonable. So how was Origins? All right. So how do we not have a half hour show here about Origins? I guess can sum it up this way. 20,000 person con that felt nowhere near 20,000 people. Exactly. We were talking about it at breakfast and it felt it felt a lot more like BGG Con really than anything else. There's no way it felt like there were 25,000 people there. Yeah, seriously. So uh, what it was, was Clay from Capstone Games gave us the opportunity or I don't know, fill in the right word here of using the Capstone Games booth as our home base of operations. So we help drive traffic to his booth. Although, let's face it, if you're a listener to the show, you don't really need our help to be interested in Lignum, Three Kingdoms, Redux, and such. But nonetheless, we help bring people to the booth, kind of like how, you know, some folks' milkshakes bring the boys to the yard. (laughs) 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 So anyway, uh, Ryan Metzler also was there at the booth, uh, We who is quite the character. I dig him. He... He is not at all like the dude who you would think would be on the reviews back on the Dice Tower. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. Not that, you know, he's some, you know, huge asshole or anything. Well, he is that, but in the best, you know. The most lovable asshole way possible. Yeah, totally. That's 100% him. 
So like you, Edward, then. Exactly. And that's why we got along so well, right? Uh, yeah. So the convention, it is totally chill. It is unlike any big quote unquote convention that we've ever been to. And the fact that it just, like Amanda said, felt like a smaller con, it's a perfect way to ease into the you know, the con season. So obviously we had heavy con to begin things, which is a lot more work than it is convention because we're hosting it. So then uh, we had Origins and now getting ready for potentially, well, WBC, potentially Gen Con, and then Essence. So this is about a half to 40% the size of those other ones. But the thing that made it so special, obviously the people, first and foremost, the people. Uh, we don't go to conventions to play games. I mean, it's like working vacations kind of for the show. You know what I mean? It's a work trip for you. Yeah, but in the best way possible. I mean, we get to meet listeners and viewers and I guess fans. I still feel weird saying that, but just listeners and viewers of the show. And that's first and foremost. And then obviously all the networking and all the business side of this uh, takes place there as well. But the fact that you and I could be at normal speaking distance, like, you know, a couple of feet away from one another and not have to yell to be able to hear each other and talk at a normal volume. Oh, wow. So, w- so it's not the stadium atmosphere. No, then not at all. And that's Spiel the thing. Gen Con. Exactly. Even though it's this massive uh, exhibit hall, which, okay, I, uh, massive compared to Essen and Gen Con is an exaggeration, but compared to the smaller cons, it's massive. It's a, it's a big Yeah, it's a top tier con. Yeah, right. And so not only that, but then you have plenty of space to walk down the aisles and you're, you don't feel like, you know, a salmon trying to swim upstream. You're being jostled in Manhattan. Right. Ex- exactly. Not that. Yeah. And that's the, that's the awesome thing. That, huh. that and sounds like it's very pleasant kind of just day-to-day atmosphere. It really is. That's a, And every nobody feels super rushed, like whether it's publishers, designers, media folk, whatever. Everybody just has time to just chat, which hmm. is... Nice and unlike any of the big, big cons to where everyone is off running either to deal with customers or in to five different directions. Right. Or meetings yeah. or et cetera, et cetera. So so the feel in and of itself for for Origins is alone. That alone makes it worth us wanting to make it a priority every year. But the thing that absolutely puts it over the top truly is the people but we could say that for most conventions that we go to but this one really has that bgg con feel to Hmm. it okay uh you know more intimate type i've heard that bgg is like a much bigger version of heavy con where it's about very nice people and board games just happen to be there and are almost like the the decoration or the scenery and that's exactly right for the simple fact that when amanda and i are going to be talking about this very rarely will you hear us mention games specifically. It's sure. all about the people and the experience, much more so than the games themselves. But okay. then again, I guess you could say that about the hobby in general. Like the 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 games themselves are more or less just the conduit to the getting inter- nice people together in the same place. Exactly. What a novel that. concept. Yep. Uh, weird, isn't it? So there was a massive gaming area. However. Uh, I've heard now, Amanda and I, we only played two games, the entire convention. Like I said, we, we didn't go there with the explicit intent of playing games, but I heard a lot of issues people had with the quote unquote open gaming area in that 
uh, the open gaming area was just a couple, and by a couple, like uh, literally like less than ten tables. Uh, otherwise, you have the board game ribbon that you had to purchase for twenty bucks above and beyond. They gave you access to the library as well as a huge amount of tables, and everything else was reserved for huh. stuff. So I heard stories about Travis and some other folks having to play the colonists on the floor. Oh my! Because wow. or on the ground because they didn't have table room um i'm of the mind that and this is something that i personally prefer is i i don't like a la carte shopping and i don't like the feeling of being nickeled and dimed yeah exactly you you paid for your you paid for your badge you want to be in the convention exactly and so i'm of the mind that you just make the badge 20 bucks more everybody's in it's all open gaming then and i hate the idea of ticketed events to where you have to pay two dollars for a ticket and that lasts that's worth x amount of hours of gaming sure for you know uh, schedule games i i despise that aspect like gen con does it apparently origins does it but again we didn't do a whole lot of gaming to where it didn't didn't come up against that then right but we just heard about it and so i know a lot of people were were upset by that but again that's all secondhand so take that for what it's worth Hmm. um so if there was a downside to it i guess that would be it yeah i guess so i just i agree with what you said in that we didn't really go to play games so we don't really we don't have any firsthand knowledge of how that experience was. And then there was the meetup. That was a last second thing. Thanks to our buddy Joe Wiggins over in uh, the Deep End podcast. He ended up putting this together. So it was only like three days notice. How was that pie? Uh, the pizza was actually really, really good. And I had a, well, we actually we both did. had a uh, really unique pizza. So they have different specialty uh, pizzas at Pies and Pints, which is the place. We had about 25 people show up, which was very, very cool. Listeners as well as industry folks. So it was it was a cool mix. But we had a uh, grape and gorgonzola pizza. Huh. That I like those two things, but I would have never thought to put them on put pizza. Put it on a pizza and stick it in the oven. And then put it in your pie hole. Uh, <laughs> Delicious. Absolutely delicious. What What did you think, Amanda? I loved it. It was so good. Whenever I saw it on the menu, I was like, I really want that, but do I really want to order it? And then you were, you and Jay both were like, let's get this grape and gorgonzola thing. It's like, okay. <laughs> and it ended up being delicious. So win. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a good time. So that was the meetup. Uh, hung out with just a ton of different media folks. Finally got to meet a bunch of the folks from Tantrum House, Blue Peg, Pink Peg, uh, we ran into Jeremy and David over at uh, Man vs. Meeple, um, recorded a little thing along with a bunch of other media folks for the Origin Awards, so oh, that cool. was cool. Uh, ran, just ran into a who's who of industry, both on the publisher side as well as media, so that was that was cool to make new, new acquaintances as well as uh, just touch base with friends that you begin to see at convention to convention. However, as great as that was... The highlight for me is having met so many folks from the herd here, from the heavy cardboard listeners and viewers. It was, Amanda wasn't surprised, she said, by how many folks came by to, to say hi to us. I, I still was. I, I was blown away by it. And as cool as it was, having all the American listeners and Canadian listeners and everything come by, that was cool. But I do got to give a shout out 
to the husband and wife, and I forget their names, I apologize, but uh, the husband and wife who came over from Qatar, which not... Oh, wow. I imagine we oh. don't have a ton of listeners or viewers over in Qatar. They say that they are our only fans in Qatar. <laughs> I'm okay with that because because we have fans in Qatar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just cool, right? So I was like, can I take a selfie with you? Right? Can I take a picture with y'all? Because I thought that was unique, right? Because, again, if they're the only ones, then it truly is the epitome of the word. Unique, right? They are number one fans in Cutter. I think they can legitimately say that. So that well, was awesome. Well, now pictures or it didn't happen. Right. So, and I, I will definitely share those. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And let me be a little bit more clear about whatever what he was saying about me not being surprised at people showing up. It was really weird and totally freaked me out. But I, you guys weren't, you know, like in the house with me whenever he was talking about Essen and how many people came up to him there and stuff. So I was expecting it because of what he had talked about Essen. So let's clear that up a little bit. All right. Fair enough. So it's not that you have a big head. Understood. Thank you. All right. So let's see what else. Uh, on the business side, we don't want to talk too, too much about that yet. Um, just know that there are some very exciting opportunities possibly ahead for us here at Heavy Cardboard HQ, which we are excited about. That's it? Yeah, I, I until things are signed, sealed, and delivered, I really don't want to jinx it. Uh, well, so. yeah, I understand that. So there's but that. But still, it sounds cool that something is something or other. Oh, actually, there are multiple somethings. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed. All right, that said, there is one really, really exciting thing that I am going to let the cat out of the bag that um is, <laughs> is very, I think for no other, if if for no other reason, validating, I think, is the best way for me to say how it is personally for me. I mean, obviously, it's going to help the show reach a broader audience. However, I, I got a chance to speak with Aldi, who is the owner and head of Board Game Geek. Mm-hmm. And talk to him, and he agrees that the Golden Elephant Award does belong on BGG, and he will ensure that that happens, if not by the time that this actually airs, soon thereafter. Nice. So, so Hey, well done. Yeah, that, that felt pretty good, dude. Well done, both of y'all. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, very cool, huh? Don't you think? Very much so. So, big thank you to Aldi, uh, and yeah, that, that was pretty cool. On that note... Um, I've been doing some interviews with folks or conversations with Heavy Cardboard is how we're terming them. And you guys that are listening to this have already heard one of them with Nuno and Paulo. Well, in the coming weeks, I'm also going to have Aldi on because I imagine if folks are anything like me, I, I call myself the world's biggest five-year-old in a sense that I always want to know the why and the how mm -hmm. of stuff. Yep. And I want to know what all goes on behind the scenes and how BGG came to be and all that. And so here's my chance to ask him all these questions. I think that'll be fun. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. I mean, it's such a longstanding website and for it to be such an encyclopedic resource for, for our hobby that I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about it hearing about that yeah me too I, I mean i don't know really any more than the average joe huh, uh knows and so i am really looking forward to the how and why of stuff so that'll be cool we also have some others lined up but we'll wait on surprises on those so the downside to columbus ohio humidity sucks 
Oh, I'm so sad for you. You had maybe 85% humidity Says in the guy June? from from Houston, yeah. Texas. Well, there's a reason you are from Houston, Texas. And not still in Houston, Texas. Exactly. You are correct, sir. Exactly. Yeah, we walked off the plane, walked outside, and we were like, <gasps> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, if we ever had to live here, we would move. We're at altitude, and some people react like that to the altitude, but it, I mean, once you once you acclimate to it, it's no big deal, whereas humidity just sucks no matter where you're from. Oh, yeah, and it's pervasive. It never leaves. It's so terrible. <laughs> the thing, The thing that I hate about humidity is... You take a shower and you're just sweating. And yep. I'm like, it just defeats the whole point. of it. You know, it's horrible. It was terrible. All right. So let's see what other stuff. Um, so Eagle Griffin brought Vital Lacerda to, oh, wow. to the convention, which Vital had a really rough first day. 25 hours to get there from, from Portugal. Oh, uh, my it, gosh. Did he, he swim? Yeah, it just about it seems. He, <laughs> He had a uh, 25-hour evolution, including a six-hour flight delay in which his flight then at the end of that from Cincinnati to Columbus got canceled. So the guys from Ego oh, had to geez. go pick him up. And he looked like a zombie when we first saw him that yeah. first day. And I was like, hey, take a picture. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until I've had some sleep and can shower and all that stuff. So we had a good time. That dude is a machine. He must have taught. Lisboa 20 times. Nice. Which I would rather eat glass than do that. <laughs> or clear rubble. Uh, right. Oh, oh, well played, sir. Well Thank played. You. But yeah, he did that. He taught uh, Vinos a number of times and everything. But the coolest moment, I think, for me was we were getting ready to run a demo for a friend's game uh, for Eagle Griffin. And Vital was there, obviously, in the Eagle Griffin area and everything, play area. And beforehand, um, he and I were had been talking throughout the convention, hanging out, whatever. And he was like, I told him, I, you know, I have brass here with me, right? The, the new versions from Roxley. He was like, oh, can I see them? <laughs> I was like, yes, you may. So I showed them to him. And it was just one of those, this is just a cool moment. You yeah. Know? And Amanda actually captured a couple a couple of those with him and I cutting up and, and laughing about and showing him the the differences between Lancashire and, and Birmingham. So that was just a, a cool moment to experience because, I mean, yeah, he's a friend of ours, but he's still, he's still Vital, Vital Lacerda, yeah. right? I actually took a picture of you showing him the game. And I sent it to Matt and I was like, how is this my life? <laughs> you know, and, and seriously, that's that's pretty amazing is <sighs> the only word I can think of that or surreal or weird or sure. cool. I, I mean, it's all those. Right. So, yeah. So ultimately, we had a blast with that and we haven't even talked about the food. So I'm going to do this real, real briefly. And Amanda, feel free to jump in here. North Market, which is across the street from uh, the convention center. It is a foodie paradise. It is like a flea market, but instead of trinkets and kitchkeys. Tchotchkes. Yeah, or those. Uh, it's it's all food um, and, and really good food. They had like a Polish joint. They had a Vietnamese. They had Italian. They had a Mediterranean. They had an Indian. They had a Mexican. They, they had all these different types of food. So you, uh, oh, not to mention the fried chicken upstairs. 
no matter what type of food you seem to be in the mood for, you could have it and not have the same meal twice. And that's just the North Market. Wow. And not to mention Jenny's ice cream. Oh, my. <laughs> brown butter with almond brittle. Mm. That is officially my favorite ice cream that I've ever had in my life. And that's saying a lot because this is coming from a kid who loves Tillamook ice cream up in Oregon. But my Lord, was this special. Really, really good. Uh, all right. All right. So also, there's an entire street called High Street, which it runs right outside the convention center that is nothing but restaurants, bars, pubs, breweries, all the foods, and just you name it, they had it, and it was all delicious. Now, some of it is high end, like they had some prime steakhouses to where you're paying 65 bucks for a steak a la carte, etc. but whatever. They had that along with all this other stuff, and that's just the stuff that's within walking distance. There are tons of other places that are further out for an Uber, taxi, whatever, that I had no idea that Columbus had such a good foodie scene. Huh. Me either. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And I will second your Jenny's notion. I had the peanut butter with chocolate chips in it. Yeah. All that in a bag of, wait for it, chips. chips. Oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, pretty awesome. So I get the feeling that if y'all were to move to Columbus, you wouldn't be complaining about humidity so much as you would start a food podcast. Um. A, I still would be complaining constantly about the humidity oh, okay. and B, probably would start a food podcast, yeah, which might not actually be a terrible idea here in Denver. Huh. Or in your kitchen, huh. for that matter. Huh. Huh. All right, so moving on. Get back to work. All right, so let's see. We found out some upcoming games that we're not allowed to talk about which makes awesome radio let me tell you uh but stuff that we're excited about that we can't talk about for another month or two so just know there is exciting news coming and exciting games i'm enthralled <laughs> right and there was one game that we can talk about that we saw that we did not get a chance to play because again we played count them two games including one of which was lisboa teaching it to like a dozen people while i was there that was cool but the one we can or I guess two that we can, was the City of the Big Shoulders, which is a, terms itself uh, with an 18xx market that's a Euro with worker placement. We have a prototype that looks like a prototype, and then we saw a prototype that looks much closer to a finished game, and it looked really, really interesting. So while we didn't get a chance to sit down with the designer, we did get to chat a bit but we didn't get a chance to have a demo or like a overview of everything uh that's something that we have planned in the next couple of weeks so we'll be able to talk more about that after we actually play our prototype but it the more i see it and the more i'm told about it the more excited i am about the game so there's that and then the other one that we did play now we don't really have enough here for a trailer, so we're not going to do that. But what we will do is a first impression. Uh, Isaac Childress, he of Cephalo Fair Games, who is the designer and publisher of Gloomhaven, Forge War, and, well, the upcoming founders of Gloomhaven. He stopped by the booth and he was like, hey, guys. And he and I chit-chatted for a while. He's like, do you want to come try Founders of Gloomhaven? And I was like, Yes. Yes, we would. <laughs> so we did just that. So it was me, Amanda, 
a just attendee of the convention, and Isaac. Uh, we sat down on one of those open gaming tables, and he taught us uh, his the prototype of Founders of Gloomhaven. Now, if you're familiar with Isaac's games and listening to this, there's a good chance that you are. Uh, our review of Forge War, we had some positives to say about it, but ultimately it was a miss for me and Tony when we reviewed it. Gloomhaven, I, I overwhelmingly have heard positives, even from fellow heavy gamers, that there's a lot of meaty decisions in that game, and we back the second edition, so looking forward to trying that. Oh, yeah. There were three copies, I think, in the uh, HeavyCon giveaway stack, and oh, two two copies in the HeavyCon giveaway stack, and I remember people were all abuzz about that copy of Gloomhaven. Who got it? Right. How can I get it? And ironically matt actually ended up with one he ended up trade well he traded for it okay and, and i think he ended up with the a copy of yokohama the deluxe edition and he ended up trading that away for a copy of gloomhaven nice so we have one in the house we just haven't played it so right now uh going into founders of gloomhaven we were 0 for 1 as far as games that we had tried and uh were big fans of of isaac's I think it's safe to say that we are now one for two. What do you think? Absolutely. It was it was a, one of those games where I wasn't really quite sure what was going on for the the beginning of it, which is normal for me for most games. Edward's nodding. Um and <laughs> but once I kind of got a hold of it and kind of got a better grasp on what was going on, it's there's a lot here. It's a really it's a really good base for me that I would like to continue to explore to figure out more about what's going on and how better to play it. And it is, I mean, a logistics game, which is right up your alley, is it not? What can I do for you? (laughs) (laughs) So I I know someone, it may have been Rado that had mentioned this, I'm not sure, that uh, it was Isaac's take on a splatter game. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. I'm I'm not willing to call it the equivalent of a splatter game because I have those at a certain, on a certain level pedestal maybe yeah maybe um however i will say that i do think that that is a fair take on what that one play we're talking first you know inclination towards the game first experience with the game but it really is the logistics of building the city of gloomhaven oh that's cool and it has like a, a medieval theme uh, running and feel through it to where you're building. Uh, everybody starts with a faction, and then you have access to two different building materials, and you decide uh, where on the map of Gloomhaven itself where you decide to put out these building materials, and then it's all about building connections between these building materials to then be able to uh, build these le- uh, further levels of buildings. And you can lease building materials from other players so that you can build these level two, level three buildings. And it's all about building connections. Then on top of that, there's an aspect of bidding involved where uh, when a player, one of the available actions that you can choose on your turn is to call a vote. Which, okay, so you have a hand of cards in which if you ever played Concordia, it's kind of like that to where you're playing a card, you're doing an action, and it also take has some aspects of uh, 
Lisboa or the gallerist in which all the players follow your sure, action yeah. in this. And it's a it's a a lesser action that they can do than the person actually than the leader, leading, right? Right. However, it it keeps everybody involved because everybody does get to do something on every player's turn. On every turn, turn yeah. Right. Even if it's as little as taking a dollar because money is tight, which you would expect in any decent Euro game, right? Sure. So one of the actions is calling for a vote. This is like in Concordia. You play a certain card to be able to pick your hand back up to be able to have more cards in your hand. Well, when you do so, you actually get paid for the money or you you get paid for the cards that are left in your hand as opposed to cards that are played. So it has this whole... Well, I want to keep playing actions, right? Right. But I get more money if I go ahead and call a vote earlier. Well, when, by calling a vote, there are special buildings that are out there that are basically victory point buildings that the winner of the vote chooses where to place these buildings. And if people already have connections to these, they automatically score whatever the special buildings that they've already built previously. Now. One aspect of the game with the vote and whoever wins the vote, they get to decide who gets the score for these. So there is a a clever aspect of kingmaking, or you can try and have yourself score for these as well from a, sta- a standpoint of who has built these these victory point buildings previously. And it's it's a clever mechanic of, okay, you're lagging behind, Ash, Amanda and you both have access to this building and can immediately score it. Who do I give the points to? Exactly. Tracking other other people's game state to kind of make sure that you make the better play. Exactly. And Amanda decided she ended up winning the vote in one of these uh, on one of these. And by vote, you have differing amounts of influence in which you can vote with which uh once you spend this influence it's spent and you have to then spend actions to be able to to reacquire more influence so when do you spend all this influence that you get and it's just a really clever meshing of mechanisms mixed in with logistics that i gotta say i really was about i it really wasn't on my hey i'm excited for to check this out game I wanted to check it out because I heard so much positive buzz around Gloomhaven itself. Right, yeah. So I was I was kind of pessimistic, I'll be honest, and was uh, just... Before you went into it? Right. I was like, eh, whatever. You know, sure, we'll give it a try. I respect Isaac as a designer and yeah. a publisher, and he went out of his way to ask us if he would like to check it out. Sure, we will. Um, but I just didn't... I was just like... On a one to six scale, I was like a three. Like, okay. yeah, we'll check it out, whatever. And Coming after? After, I would say it's probably a five wow. as far as okay. anticipation now, excited to check out this game. And yeah, I'm looking forward to reviewing it. How about you, Amanda? Now, again, this is first take and all that stuff. First take, high level, absolutely. I'm very interested in playing it some more, especially with it being a logistics game, because those are my favorite types of games. Um but yeah, just a little bit, you know, like the lore and stuff, I don't get because I haven't, I feel like we might need to play Gloomhaven at least a little bit to be able to kind of 
understand exactly what the factions are and exactly stuff. Yeah, the faction aspect but again you we didn't coming into the game we'd never heard of what these factions are or what the history is behind them you don't need you don't need to but to i feel like that. it might help a little bit yeah it, it t- immerse yourself in the theme kind of it's help create the narrative that the game's trying to create exactly sure. or whereas I kind of was thinking of the game more or less just from a medieval standpoint. Just, hey, it's an old school medieval town that you're building up. And, and the narrative there works perfectly. It it, it works. Sure. I you imagine, know I mean? you know, one player is the plus one stone faction and one player is the plus one wood faction. Kind of like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did he indicate how far along in development the game is or how uh, much it might change? Yeah. I, I asked him, so when's the Kickstarter coming? He says, oh, yeah. Uh, the week I get home. So oh, wow. we're recording this on Wednesday, releases tomorrow. Uh, I, I expect it to show up on Kickstarter. My guess is within three to four weeks. So he was going to start working on the Kickstarter as soon as he got home. So look for it by the end of July. And I'll be honest, we're going to back it just based off of our one play. So like I said, I... Uh, this has heightened my anticipation now for Gloomhaven because I enjoyed Founders so much, uh, and just really looking forward to it. I think it's uh, I think he's going to have a winner. Plus, he has all the buzz and all the the cachet. I think following from him from the success Gloomhaven. of Gloomhaven. But the the thing I'm most excited about from a personal standpoint for Isaac is he didn't rest on his laurels here. It's not eh. You know, it's a it's a game on a pile of games. It's not that where he could have after the massive success of Gloomhaven. And that's not at all the case. He said when I talked to him, I, I he said he, he brought it to Last Origins and it was just a just a crap game when he brought it to Origins. And he's really happy with where it is right now. So to answer your question, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of uh, mechanical changes. Well, he's already done it. Pretty much. He took it to the woodshed, and now you've seen the finished product. Or, that, that's or exactly it, yeah. And he was talking about getting the art assets done and artwork and everything in, in anticipation. But really, mechanically, I don't think there's a whole lot left for him to tweak. Um, we had discussed one aspect of the game that he may or may not adjust, but that's, I mean, his prerogative. Those obviously. are adjustments yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point, I imagine. Yeah, there's no major changes coming. So, cool. so yeah, Founders of Gloomhaven, uh, definitely worth checking out, and... It was a very big, pleasant surprise for both me and Amanda, I think. I mean, I don't want to speak for you. Oh, yeah, it was for me as well. Because, I mean, you know, you hear Gloomhaven, so you think it's this gigantic box. You're not expecting anything like it was. Yeah, it's. I mean, this was a normal, well, I imagine it will be in a quote-unquote normal-ish size, Euro-size box. Oh, I bet he can figure out a way to make it into a giant box, too. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he could. I don't know if he wants to, but <laughs> but he could. But yeah, so Founders of Gloomhaven, uh, thumbs up after the first play from That's both of exciting. us. That's exciting. Yeah, very excited. So yeah, that was, uh, I mean, that was pretty much Origins. I mean, it was it was all about the people. Um it was all about networking for the for the show, obviously. I mean, there, there's got to be some of that. There's stuff we can't talk about. There were lots of listeners and, and viewers that we got to hang with, which was really awesome. It was, it was awesome to hang out with Clay and Ryan and Megan and all the other folks at the Capstone Games booth. And yeah, just big, big thanks to Clay for hosting us at the booth and, and, actually helping us out uh, securing a hotel room and all that stuff so 
yeah, just a really good time and one in which I think it's solidified even after just one Origins that Origins is in the permanent rotation for Heavy Cardboard to attend. What do you think? Definitely. I had so much fun. Cool. Awesome. Yay. All right. So Columbus, we will be in you on an annual basis, I guess. So that's Origins 2017. So it's been almost two weeks now. We received our custom table from BoardGameTables.com. I gotta say, really couldn't be happier with the table itself. How about you? Same here. It's so gorgeous. So for those curious, the actual details on the table, it's six foot by three and a half foot plane surface. So specifically 72 inches by 42 inches wide. And that was with intent. For you were the saying you mapped out those dimensions very specifically. I did. I, I brought boards to various furniture stores to try and find out what feels like the right size table. Oh, you were that guy. Yeah, oh, I a hundred percent. What dude, if I'm going to get a custom board game table, you're going to do betcha, it right. I'm going to be that guy. So Amanda chose as far as the color and stain and all that stuff. Naughty Alder. It's a special dark wood stain. It has Navy colored speed cloth, which we got Honestly, because we thought it would show up really well on the camera as far as for a background for the live streams. And got to say, so far, I think we chose right in that respect. Me too. It's so pretty. It's a standard table height. Um, it has two slide out cup holders on each of the short ends and then one dual cup holder in the middle on the long ends. It's got extra card holders so that we can show off cards during gameplay, poker chip racks, and wing shelves. And I got to say, man, it, I, I mean, you you can hear this. You hit the table. It ain't going anywhere. Totally solid. 100% like it doesn't it doesn't shake. It doesn't wobble. It high quality construction, high quality feel. And putting it together took less than 10 minutes. It was stupid easy. It fit together like a puzzle. It really did. Like, hey, put the red tab into the red slot. I mean, it was it, it was literally that simple. It comes with a little instruction manual that is just one sheet here. Match red to red, blue to blue, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe it has numbers. So for like the, uh, the drawers and everything, those had numbers. Put those in. You put a screw in. Done. It took longer unpacking it from the packing material than it did to put together. <laughs> oh, wow. Which I guess is a compliment in one respect because of the fact that, you know, it was packed well enough that it took that long to get thoroughly into. packaged, I yeah. imagine. But again, they, I mean, this is, this is rightly now, so. This is now the cornerstone of the live streams for us or, you know, in a normal person's home, you know, that isn't live streaming their games. This is going to be the centerpiece of their game room. Oh, so yeah. they want to make sure that. You know, it it's the epitome of perfection as far as it re arriving undamaged and everything. And Oh, it it's in pristine condition still, and we've been playing on it for weeks now. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here recording on it, and I'm just thinking the, the armrest edge with the eased edges and the distance, the dimension from the top of the rail to the playing surface is perfect. Like, you know, your wrist flexes at just the right angle when you're leaning on it, when you're talking on it, when you're playing on it. It's clear that these are finely crafted, well-designed, 
functional pieces of art. Yeah, and your arms are comfortable on on the. I, I don't want to use them. I call them armrests, but on that rail, yeah, which is three inches wide. And I, I'll be honest. Um, when I first heard about boardgametables.com, I was like, I don't know. Because only three inches wide, I was concerned about whether or not that would be comfortable to rest your arms on. I was worried that it'd be too thin. Well, we actually saw him at a at a show, and Chad is a you know real life friend of ours. You know before all of this, and come to find out, oh no, three inches, pretty perfect. It's it's comfortable. I mean, I've been resting my arms on this the whole time while we've been recording, and. Totally comfortable to me. We've live streamed Indonesia, which was a four plus hour game. Totally comfortable during that. So yeah, really, really could not be more happy with this table if I tried. We're actually going to be shooting a video about the table in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that if you're so inclined. So yeah, if you're in the market for or considering a custom board game table for your gaming space, we can wholeheartedly not only support but endorse boardgametables.com both from a customer service standpoint as well as the quality of craftsmanship so go check them out boardgametables.com and tell them you heard about them from heavy cardboard all right you ready to talk some pax renaissance oh yeah i'm ready pax renaissance published in 2016 designed by phil and matt Eklund, published by their own publishing house which is sierra madre games Plays two to four players. Says it plays in one to two hours, which I think is fairly true. I actually think it can play less, uh, even quicker than with less players. What about you? Oh yeah, it can it can play much faster. Um, obviously, the playtime is assuming that you have the rules under your belt, and so uh, our our playthroughs are a bit longer, partly because we're narrating our plays on those videos. Um, but yeah, I've seen games that are quite rapid, but you know, if people drag things out, then it can take the full time slot. Yeah, I think that's fair. As far as availability and cost, it's 30 bucks from gamesurplus.com and only another 12 bucks for the expansion. So I would hurry. Get it. As far as plays and player counts that we've experienced, I've gotten lazy on tracking my plays. I apologize. So I know I have either eight or nine plays, and that's across the entire player count. I've actually uh, hit 10. This is one of the first games in a long while where I've hit 10 full plays so of the game. So you dimed it. Congratulations. Dimed it. Thank you nice. so much. And I've actually played at all three player counts, two, three, and four. Yep, same here. So as far as scalability, now the only thing here that changes is the number of cards in each of the East and West decks, really? The only... That's the beating heart of the game. Right. So now I know some folks uh, for a two-player game recommend playing with a three-player setup because basically it's just making the game a little bit longer. So to elongate can, the game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, I'll be honest, I understand, but I don't feel like the two-player is too short, but I do feel like the idea of extending it with the three-player amount of cards in it makes sense. But as is game doesn't scale a whole lot itself, do you think? I actually think it does scale uh, between the players. Changing the number of cards in the draw deck that come before the kind of Comet uh, 14 cards, um, I think that actually changes it just right. Our two-player game um, actually felt it was fast, and it was a little surprised when, when the Comets came out, but it feels right. Oh, and no, I agree that it feels right, but I'm just saying as far as the game 
physically scaling like the, four cards per person doesn't seem like a lot but right, it is exactly it, it yeah, is i think that's fair all right so you want to give folks a little background in pax renaissance players are renaissance banking families locked in a struggle for no less than the destiny of europe long live the medici you will find yourself purchasing cards from the market to play into your tableau to potentially use for their one shots agents or operations but what you're really doing quickly shines through Fomenting revolt in France, declaring jihad in Hungary, orchestrating a mercantile republic in Italy. That's assuming you're not too busy running trade fairs across the whole of Europe, enriching yourself and the locals alike in the process. Flowing through the game like a current, or a trade route, is an analogy to chess, with the whole of Europe as the board. You'll place your pawns, defend with rooks, and attack with knights, or gain a queen to ensnare a king. Take care of those bishops. They move and exist obliquely to all other pieces in play. You'll topple kingdoms, conquer neighbors, and have your empires conquered in turn. All so you can strive and stretch and reach for victory. One of four. Assuming a comet has appeared in the sky to signal that the end is coming. So yeah, not much going on in a game. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's no big deal. Just buy a card. Two actions. Buy a card, play a card. What's the big deal? I think Vitor Lacerda would 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 appreciate that explanation <laughs> on how to play Pax Ryan. Oh my gosh. There's so much going on in this game. Every card has at least six important pieces of information that you're tracking, and that's ignoring the name of the card, which to me is like all the heart of the thematic and life of the game, and the and the flavor text on the card too, which is a dense paragraph of probably three-point font that goes into the actual detail of, like, the coffee trade in Egypt in the 1500s. I had no idea about it, but it's there, and I've bought it more than once to make money on it. That's awesome. And for those that don't know, Ash is big on theme, whereas I'm the polar opposite to where a theme can enhance a game, but it's not necessary for as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Ash comes about it a different way. I come at it from basically the opposite end of the spectrum. To me, the theme is so much of the game that, to me, a theme that appeals to me can even overcome, perhaps, lackluster or unoriginal mechanics, assuming that the game itself still still bears some of the fun that ties back into the theme. So this should be a really interesting review. I'm excited <laughs> to do this. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the uh, five factors that give the game its weight, or at least why we think. Start with the with the rules complexity. Oh uh, not my much gosh. here, right? <laughs> oh boy, the most opaque game that I have ever played. Period. Bar none, I would agree, and that's including we've both played High Frontier. Um, it's the most opaque game to learn. It's the most opaque game to learn to read, and it takes a while. It took, I think, four plays for the for the map board and the game state to become legible to me, for me to just begin tracking all the things that I'm trying to do, much less what my three opponents are trying to do. Yep, it took me seven or eight games before I was able to really formulate oh, this is really what I'm trying to do in the game. Now, we do have folks in our game group that obviously are savants and were able to grok this in their first play, sometimes yeah. their second play. Uh, I am not one of those people. That's not me. Yeah. Not at all. This and game is a bear to learn. The how isn't nearly as hard to understand as the why, but the how still can be intimidating as far as there's just 
it's a lot of rules in this game. And there is a significant rules overhead and barrier, which we'll talk about more in general later and or in detail in, in later. But yeah, the complexity of this game is is very, very high. Yeah. Once I had the basic rules kind of under my belt and in my head, I spent probably my third through seventh plays with my nose in the rule book, just trying to remind myself, how do I do this? Is this conspiracy going to succeed? And why? And why? And what are the edge cases? You know, uh, what are the little weird things that I'm coming up against? How do I make sure that I'm doing the thing I'm trying to do or that I think that I'm trying to do? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. Okay, go for it. Right. So that's just the complexity of the game. Now, Going into the planning, so I, I've heard a lot of folks talk about how tactical this game is, and and it really is quite tactical. However, there is quite a bit of planning that has to take place in this game that you have to plan out your strategy trying to go for certain victory conditions and be prepared for when the comets do appear, which allow you to activate these victory conditions. You have to have a plan in place ahead of time yep so to call this a strictly tactical game i think is selling the game short i agree and uh, for me the strategies available to you did not become apparent until later in my play counts where i could see oh there's strength in the ottoman empire that's something to try to hinge a strategy on you can go into a game before even seeing the cards in the market that's always a static fact of the game setup. As part of, exactly, part of the setup that, oh, hey, the Ottomans start out in a strong position. Right. So getting the Ottoman Empire and working, using that as your base, not a terrible strategy. Exactly. Then again, there might be somebody else that is going for, Gunning the, for the same, same thing. thing. Exactly. And then it comes down to what cards come out and then trying to make lemons or lemonade out of lemons. So you definitely have to be flexible and, and and tactical based on the cards that come out in the marketplace, as well as tactical in a sense that you have to react to what other players are doing. Yeah, and understanding what their game state is and how the the conveyor belt of cards will affect them. And this thing I'm still struggling to do is understanding that those trade fairs can move the conveyor belt quite quickly. And that coronation that you thought was out of reach for your opponent suddenly falls into their lap. For so, a cheaper uh, oh, pr purchase price there in the market. Exactly. Right. For a pittance instead of for... A fortune. For a fortune. Thank you. Um, and so for that reason, it's not quite one of those games where the game state changes too much between your own turns where you, you know, you throw up your hands in disgust that I can't plan out my turns. You can. It simply takes more knowledge of what things are available to you and also an understanding that some of these things take three or four turns to come to fruition and you have to make sure that all of your actions are being purposefully put towards making that happen. A misstep can be very, very costly, but in a lot of the games that we play, a misstep can and should be very costly. Yeah, I think so. I think that the reward of skillful play is appropriate to our genre of games. Right. So so even though it is a more tactical game than it isn't, there is still plenty of planning involved in this. So now you're talking two components where this game is leaning heavily towards the heavy side. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have stuff that detracts from it, be it 
luck and random factors. To my way of thinking, there is zero luck in this game. Uh, there's a high level of variability as to which cards do and do not go into the draw decks and the order in which they come out. You know, uh, at HeavyCon, I was teaching two games of Pax Renaissance at the same time. I wasn't playing in them, but teaching and refereeing two games simultaneously. Which is impressive in and uh, of itself. Thank you. I think I found my limit. I think that was a tad too much. I think it detracted <laughs> from the enjoyment of the people playing. Okay. But I saw two parallel games unfold radically differently. One had coronations right up front. One never had them at all. And if they come out late, they're far less effective because those empires aren't usually in the stack anymore. And so I saw, you know, literal divergence in the possibility of this game, but none of it was luck. You know, there's no dice rolls. You know what a military outcome will be. You know what the outcome of a conspiracy will be. In because the, there's it, no hidden information yeah, in this exactly. outside of someone's the, hand cards. Except if you're if you're you paying saw attention, right? Well, and that's assuming that you have enough spare brain capacity to keep track of those eighty-three things at the same time. I'm not there yet. Neither am I, frankly. But but I would argue that okay, if you don't want to call it luck, I would say there's a fair amount of randomness. In, oh yes, in what order the cards come out, plus what comes out, because there was one. So going back to the whole uh, planning aspect. I was basing a strategy that I was trying to I was trying to shoehorn it in. So boo on me. This is this is a me issue and not a game issue, but it's something to be aware of and I think does play into the whole luck and random factor aspect that here I am trying to work on a certain victory condition and working around a vote. There wasn't a single vote ops card oh yeah I in the entire in either of the two decks yeah now, yeah that's rare and i realize that's the exception to the rule but that's where that randomness comes in to where oh i wasn't going to be able to hold a vote which would assist me in being able to form a republic which is one of the victory conditions if i had flipped it got a comet all that stuff i get that but i was trying to work towards that anticipating that there would be some and well, see, here's where I would give the counterpoint that, you know, you came into the game with your strategy and you steered hard into your strategy and the battlefield did not develop in that way. And, and therefore you I had lost. the choice to adjust or not. And you stuck hard with your strategy. Oops. And so I think that that's, you know, uh, okay, I'll, I'll give, I'll grant you that randomness exists in the game, not just in the cards that go in the decks, not just in the order in which they come out, and not just where the comets are in the bottom 14 cards. Another factor, not randomness, is how the individual players play the cards. This is such a complex game and such a heady and uh, dense game that optimal play is a long ways off. Having all four players at the table play optimally is a long ways off. And so you can see that, oh, that conspiracy may happen and someone buys it and doesn't even use it. They it may is, not even activate the so one So you're anticipating them playing this card for the reason that you think they bought it being a completely different reason. And, oh, so you have the randomness of the players. And I, how the players play the cards on the table. Fair enough, but in any kind of game that we're going to enjoy playing, you're going to have you that. Have that so I feel like that's going to be a baseline anyway. Sure. That you always should have to factor, factor that in, sure. right? But I'm talking as far as the game itself, there is that randomness of what cards are in the deck and how they come out. Now, does it 
detract from the weight of the game? I don't think so from a simple fact that exactly what you had said. I should have done a better job of zigging instead of just staying the course. And that's that's on the player. That's not on the game. You're running back and they said to run run between the tackle and there was no hole there. And, and you so kept I bounced pushing outside anyway. or I bounced or outside didn't. and or didn't. Yeah. So. All right. I think that's a fair point. <laughs> as far as game length here, I I think it it can play surprisingly quick, more so than a lot of players are going to anticipate early on until the rules get out of the way. I yeah. think you're going to be fighting game length to where if not everybody's into the game, the game can become a bit of a slog because there's overhead here. And, oh, sure. And, and a lot of it, too. And if someone's struggling to parse the game, you know, that slows it down just just by dint of, you know, they're having trouble reading the game state to make one of their two actions, uh, not to mention actually figuring out the mental gymnastics to do the thing that you're trying to do. That said, I think the game plays in a perfect length that it should play, except even maybe even a little too short with the two player setup. Okay. Okay. Uh, I I I feel like the game plays perfectly at all three play counts. Um, I saw where people wanted to make the two player game a little longer. To my way of thinking, I just want to play two player again. And that's fair. And that's actually a good idea. Like you could play. It plays quick enough that in a two player with experienced reasonably players, reasonably experienced players, to where you're not fighting with the rules constantly. Yeah, rules legible players call it. You could do a in a regular. You know, time for, you know, say something like an Arkwright, you could you could easily play a best two out of three and, and playing all three to completion. Yes, I I'm think saying. so. And th- to my way of thinking, there's enough variety in the possibilities of the game where you're not playing the same game three times in a row. Oh, God, no. Each of those three games could be massively different. A, you know, a rich East trade route, a bankrupt West trade route, or a balanced trade route, or vice versa. You know, a game where Reformation comes out, a game where jihads never happen. All of that's possible in those three best two out of three. Or like what you were talking about with the coronations. Exactly. Early versus late versus however, you know, sporadic, coronation heavy, uh, because that's going to accelerate the amount of empires that come into play, which then give players more options in what to do. In, with in exactly how you butt heads with your opponents. Yeah. And it, it very much is a uh, knife fight in a phone booth, but more on that in a little bit. So last but not least, the getting it aspect. <laughs> there is no game. I mean, we started out by saying this is the most opaque game that we have ever played. There is no game in which I have felt I've needed more and more plays of to be able to really wrap my head around and have the rules get out of the way and feel moderately competent than this game. And that took me seven plays. Thankfully, I've enjoyed the game enough to where I'm eager to want to learn those things, but it still took me seven games. Whereas Skyler, he was able to, figure it out fairly quickly in, in under, his first game he went to the religious victory which, which is, is one of the harder victories to parse much less to achieve which is staggering to me so there you have the two extremes i feel like so the getting it it's daunting here it is for me personally um the getting it took i feel like those seven plays to where okay i feel comfortable 
not being enticed to have my nose in the rule book during the three other opponents turns for me to figure out what I want to do. I feel like going into the game now at 10 plays and a handful of teach non-playing teaches that I know what I want to do. I know what I want to try to do. And I know what I want to try to do to achieve that. And then I have to react to what my opponents are doing. And I have to make lemonade out of what is this in the marketplace? And to be able to counter what your opponents are doing. Exactly. So yeah, the getting it factor is going to be pretty high. So ultimately, I think it's very, very, very safe to say this is a heavy game. Oh, this is a super heavy game. In my own personal kind of, okay. Pantheon gonna, of experience? Uh, yes. Um, it's, I think, the heaviest game I've played or seen. I think I'm inclined to agree with you. For the simple fact that, okay, we've played High Frontier. Yeah. High Frontier, really not that hard once you, once you understand what it is you're doing. Yeah. Um, now, it's time-consuming. It's a slow process, et cetera, et cetera. But there is no game that was more opaque and that has required an amount of effort to competently understand and come up with a strategy, not through the rules, but just concepts alone. This puts it at the extreme edge of what it is that I have experienced. And it just so happens that I really enjoy it too. So that helps. But yeah, needless to say, the heaviest of heavy as far as we're concerned. And I think Amanda would agree if she were here for this. Uh, There's a reason she's not actually in the review. She just, she's five plays in, I think at this point, and just doesn't feel comfortable and you having taught this on the live stream a couple times thought you would be a perfect addition to the show and i think that's showing exactly here thank you so let's talk about the uh the cardboard components itself i think it's it i mean it's it's pretty basic it's a deck of cards some cubes and quite nice little miniature wooden chess pieces i really like those chess pieces i actually really like the chess analogy in the game and those pieces um, all all kind of help drive the point home. And they're all very clear to be able to tell the difference in what they are. There's no ambiguity as far as what's a rook, what's a knight, etc. cetera. Uh, the card com- uh, quality is solid. I haven't felt the need to sleeve my cards yet. They're, although, good, they're good heavy cards. For as much as you're shuffling and handling the cards, they're just right on the stock. I agree. Now, with the print run getting relatively close to selling out now i start considering sleeving it just to make sure oh yeah that because thought about unfortunately that. one of the two half the cards are black bordered cards on the back side and i do worry about those wearing a little mm. as you shuffle because there's a reason that most cards aren't black bordered because they show wear and they start showing up white you can start to yeah now realistically I'm not a competitive magic player anymore. I will never get to that level of knowledge of the decks of cards. Yeah, you scratch, you mark the back of the TMR system and you know it's on the draw deck. Right. And I'm never going to get there. However, figure we should at least mention that. Uh, So if you're a habitual sleever or something you might consider, might be, but it's not due to the quality of the cards themselves. Um, now, something I would actually point out is the box is quite petite, and if you go <laughs> sleeve those cards, 
it may not fit anymore. Exactly, which the the box size itself is seven and a half inches by five inches by two inches or 19 by 13 by four centimeters. As it, it is, I can just fit the base game in the expansion in my box with my one sheet, eight and a half by 11 of teaching notes and the player aids. That's it. Nothing else is fitting in that box. And that's unsleeved. That's unsleeved. There's so no room for air. You're either going to have a gaping box or you're going to need a second box or something else if you do sleeve these cards. So something to be aware of for sure on that. But as heavy as the stock on the boxes, you could probably just rubber band it. Or uh, Oh, you're saying rubber band the outside of the box. Yeah. yeah I, I, blasphemy. But yes, <laughs> I, I, I get that. You could doesn't mean you should. All right, so graphic design. Go for it. Um, these are very dense cards. The Empire cards, the play cards. Oh, as far as the information dense. Oh, yeah, the information on them. Every, I feel like every every pixel on the card is put to good use. Uh, the ops icons, um, I was actually reading through the living rules. The iconography is actually taken from the Noun Project. Uh, they, used, they used the icons that are available through the Noun Project, and they are all eminently legible. Once I've actually gotten through 10 plays and understand what the heck it's trying to say. There's consistent iconography throughout on all the cards. So that helps because it's all consistent. Yeah. That's a big plus. Again, once you know what you're looking at. You know, the agent banner has the knights icon or the rooks or the bishops and the uh, empire cards have the kings, which all helps to drive home that analogy of chess that flows through the game. However, there is one confusing part on the bottom of the cards where they reference a location or generality and how those two intersect, whether it's the Papal States or the Wests right. and stuff like that. So there is a little bit of ambiguity there. I would actually say that it's not the graphic design necessarily because the icon is perfect. That's the icon fair. It's more the rules it. It's the rules interpretation. Right, sure. which we'll get into here in a little bit for sure. And this is definitely a marked improvement. If you are familiar with Pax Porfiriana, as far as the graphic design goes. Oh, is how, it? It's just too much flavor intersecting on the cards. Whereas this has a ton of flavor text. Like you had said earlier, there's upwards of a paragraph on each of these cards for flavor text slash history slash thematic reasons. That even if they weren't there, the game is still completely playable because it's not necessary. However... It does make the cards a little bit busy, and it does make them a little bit more information dense than they would necessarily need to be. Now, would that detract from the thematic immersion of the game? Yes, I, I understand that, but... It does make it harder to, to learn to read in your first uh, 5, 10, 15 plays of the game. All right, which which is a... Which is a sin, as far as I'm concerned, for <laughs> function needs to trump form. And I get it, and I'm okay with it, because I'm used to playing Pex Porfiriana. I'm used to Phil Eklund's love of theme and history and just flavor text stuff. However, if you're coming into this game having no experience with that... Be prepared. Oh, my information overload. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So so is it a, a marvel of graphic design? I would say no. Is it functional? Yes. But you also have to learn to parse where information is on the cards and understanding what the icons are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That said, all the information is consistent, and so that's a positive in that respect. 
I would agree. And actually, on the last note of internal consistency, the artwork that's on the cards is all kind of artwork from the period, be it paintings or woodcuts um, or drawings of those people or places or things. And it all kind of carries a similar feeling. There's other games where with a deck of cards, with art assets, where there's glaring differences between pieces of art within the game. Um, it's consistent through here, and it really does. It evokes the feel of the time period. It's very evocative. Yes, yeah, I it, agree. It really is. So they did a real good job in that respect because it's consistent, and you, it, it's not jarring, I think, is a good way to put it, like from card to card. Yes. It's not like, whoa, that doesn't look like this belongs. It's good, smooth levels. They did good level testing. Agreed. All right, moving on to that rule book. So it's information dense. Oh, my word. Uh, and to say that it can be a bit of a bear to work through, I feel like is shorting bears. I agree. Um, it's a grizzly bear times a polar bear times a man bear pig of a rule book. It is information dense. Um, however, it is rational and it is orderly and it is complete and it is 99% free of error. Uh, the front part of the rules are a rundown of the setup and the rules of the game, and the back half is an alphabetical glossary defining and describing those game points. Now, that glossary is fantastic, and yes. I wish more and more games use that. I think that's a, a fantastic just aspect in addition to the game, which is really helpful and necessary for a game like this as far as referencing stuff. That's the rational kind of rules reference sheet that you need in a game like this. However, I would argue that it is complete and error-free for the simple fact that there is such a thing in this game that war gamers are going to be familiar with, that Euro gamers are probably not, and that's called living rules in the hell that living rules are. Living rules is a perpetually updated, irregularly updated rule set that's found usually on a publisher's website or something like that. In this case, a Google Doc. Right. Which works to clarify any ambiguities or corrections or you can only do so much playtesting. I get that. And when it's released in the wild, instead of a however wide the playtesting group is, now all of a sudden you have thousands of playtesters out there so to speak, i.e. customers playing the game. So they make this living rules instead of an FAQ to be able to adjust and make changes as needed. The problem with it is it can lead to you're playing one version of the game and I'm playing another yeah. that when, when you and I get together, no, Which wait, that's not the, how you the play that. That kind of bifurcation of the rules. And that makes for a problem. I'm of the mind that a, hand off the rule book writing to somebody that knows how to write a technical manual, i.e. a rule book. And number two, get it right the first time. I, the rule book is an impediment to play for this game. Yeah. It, 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 and that's a, that's a shame because now, would it make the game easy to learn if it were written, you know, clearer? Not really. Or easier, but it wouldn't make it easy. It would make it easier to learn and still no easier to play. How's that? Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's fair. I think that's pretty spot on. I mean, on, on the plus side, though, uh, there are a couple of great player aids on BGG that, that folks have made, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, those are necessary, I feel like, for the game. Yeah, either those or 
print up four, three more copies of the rule book itself so that everyone can have their nose in the rules while you're playing. That's effectively what those player aids are, are allowing you to do. Some have the iconography on them. Some are just text. They, they all do something a little different, but I agree they are utterly necessary. And none of them came in the game, which is really, yeah, it should. On the plus side, there's a great little chart on the back of the rule book that helps with different ops in the game, which really is actually really well done. Yeah, that conflict resolution chart, I forget who did it uh, from the living rules. It sounded like a fan or a playtester of the game helped put that together. And it's very easy to help you understand the different ways that you can affect empire or regime change. Right. At a glance, it's written in a concise, legible manner. I just, I think Phil would... And by Phil, I mean designer slash publisher Phil Eklund. I think he would benefit from handing the rules writing off to somebody else. I really, really do. I think uh, I realize the man is a literal genius. Actual rocket scientist. Yeah, he really is a retired rocket scientist. However, rules writing. You talk to a lot of designers. It is the hardest part of designing the game. Hand it off to somebody that can do a better job to help make the games more accessible. Unless he doesn't really feel the need, then it is what it is. But as these games get more popular and reach a broader audience, I think that inhibits the appeal of these games. That one aspect. And again, I've said this to Albin Viard. I've said this to Uli from mm-hmm. Spielworks. Yeah. That if your game, if your rules are an impediment to people being able to play your game, that's a you issue. That's not a people issue. Fix the problem. It's that simple. Well, and in the the interim, uh, the solution to that problem is for people to take a look at our teach and playthrough videos on heavy cardboard vids. Yeah, not to plug our stuff, but to plug our stuff, I think you did a marvelous job of teaching, especially in the two-player uh, game that you and I played. Thank I, you. I think if you go and you watch the the teaching and playthrough, it's less than an hour and a half, I think, total for the entire playthrough. Yeah. I think if you use that as a base and then go and read the rule book, ah, okay, this makes sense. Now, is it going to make the game completely coherent, 100% on your first play? Probably no. not. But is it going to make the barrier to entry easier? I think so. So as far as teaching and learning, honestly, use the resource that's been provided. I think that I think that would be really helpful for a lot of folks. All right. So now let's get into the, well, meat of the review kind of. And why do we enjoy this game? For me, yes. I play board games to interact with people. Obviously, sure. To we get all up do. close and personal with people. And this game creates a phone booth out of medieval Europe and kicks all four of you straight into it and says, win. And I love how the game puts pits, everyone against each other. And occasionally you and I may be allied against Sweater Mike to try to stop the most evil so that we can then duke it out afterwards. Um, But at the same time, uh, the game also lets us kind of play within our own style. You know, someone may be more aggressive with the knights, more kind of directly aggressive. Um, someone may be a little more calculated. And, and subterfuge exactly. and backstabbery. And harbor their resources until the time is right to strike and the iron is super hot. 
And I love that the game has enough depth and complexity to allow everyone to have their own kind of play and also to enable and I think maybe even force everyone to play with each other. It's a giant sandbox set in the Renaissance period that's playable in under two hours. Go for it. Uh, Yes, please. (laughs) I mean, it's 100 years of history condensed into two hours or or less. I mean, it could be under an hour in a two-player game. I mean, it has everything that a resistance or a Renaissance game should have in it. Oh, yeah. Um, Everything from declaring someone pope or buying the pope, uh, gunpowder units in the arquebusier in Turkey, and the toppling governments or creating uh, theocracies in any part of Europe. Piracies. You have beheadings. You have, I mean... uh Buying a queen to marry her off to to take a king into your tableau, only to have somebody else steal it away the next turn. I mean, religious wars, you know, between the three major religions, you have, you know, Islam, you have the Protestants, you have Catholicism all fighting against one another as well. And what I love best about the game is the four possible victory conditions in the in the intro paragraph to the game, it talks about how will you elevate Europe out of its stinking feudalism or will you crush it under your boot into imperial hegemony? And I love how the game kind of looks down on two of those victory conditions and almost dares you to go after the Renaissance victory. And the puppets hearing that kind of the, the behind the stage, like you're, you know, you're ignore the man behind the curtain while you know the great and powerful Oz, right? Seriously, I mean, <laughs> it's like you're you're juggling revolutions and wars and triggering things and jihads and all these things, all in the name of making your banking family the most powerful behind the scenes in Europe. I mean, that's exactly what was going on, and that's what makes this game just so truly delicious that it does. And for me, that's where the theme to me is such a cornerstone of the game because without the that thematic immersion, it would not be the same game to me. Uh, you really are doing these things. You really are engaging in the coffee trade or less seemly kinds of trade uh, to, to enrich your family. Which, again, thematically makes sense, but it also actually helps... With gameplay, it helps you make sense of the how and the why of why it is you're doing the things that you're doing, which again, I'm learning as I get more and more into this hobby, how theme can aid when it's implemented well. And it's very much implemented well here that it it assists you in learning the game if you allow it to. It's almost like a mental shorthand that helps you to latch onto the different aspects of the game. You know, understanding intuitively that here's kings, there's queens, knights and rooks on the map table. Yeah, and it, it uses those known components from chess. I mean, most everybody is going to be familiar. At least a passing understanding or familiarity of with chess. It. And so it uses them as thematic pieces that just makes sense in the theme. And yes, it works. I think I think if, if you take nothing else away from this review, serious props to the Ecklins for 
using this known component in a thematic way to actually evoke the feeling of the Renaissance. I think that was just masterful, truly masterful. I agree completely. So on top of this, this whole, you know, are you going to be just completely direct and upfront? I'm just going to go and take my knights and bash your head in, or am I going to use subterfuge and conspiracy and trying to undermine everything you're working for without you actually noticing it? You have, once you get competent in the game and your opponents get competent in the game, you absolutely have to 100% of the time be aware of what your com- opponents are doing because by the time if you're not by the time you realize it it very well might be at the point to where yeah it's too late there is nothing you can do to stop the inevitable win by so and so whether it's Amanda sweater mike matt etc i agree and At first, if everyone's at the same experience level, you're all kind of muddling through and each of your missteps helps to kind of uh, mitigate the inexperience within the game. But if there's a great disparity of experience between different players... You're going to get a house. Yeah, but that's no different than actual chess, where if I were to play someone with, you know, an ELO, I don't even know where the numbers are, but who has a good ELO, of course I'm going to get steamrolled if they don't pull their punches. And the same is true here. So thematically, I I read one person's take on this, and I, I think this is pretty spot on, how they see the comic cards in the victory di- conditions because all the victory conditions are inactive at the beginning of the game, and players must purchase the comic cards and use the comic cards and try and quote-unquote interpret what the comet is representing to activate certain victory conditions. And I was like, huh, I'd never thought of that, but I'm like, that's exactly it. So you and I both see the same comet. It's there in the market conveyor, you know, and it's available for purchase for however much money that it might be, depending on where it is in the market. But depending on who purchases the comet card, we're going to quote unquote interpret, interpret it that differently in a oh, different that's way so cool. to where I might use it to tri- or to activate a certain victory condition, whereas you might use it for a you, different, i.e. interpret it differently. And I was like, well, that's kind of badass. That's really that. cool. That's neat. You'll you'll purchase it and interpret it as a sign from God, whereas I will purchase it and interpret it as a sign to extend the shipping fleets out into the Atlantic and conquer the globe that's right that's so cool and i figure you would appreciate that oh, absolutely Mr. Theme himself I do. right so it gives an albeit considerably condensed and abstracted feel of a game like here i stand dare i say in a quarter to 20 percent of the time now these are completely different games they have the same theme obviously and they're effectively doing the same thing but this is more of a stepped out version as far as more of a a more strategic look as opposed to what well even though here i stand is a strategic level game this is even viewed out a little bit further i would say two orders of magnitude higher up higher altitude above above what's going on but to me the text on the card and the names of the cards still gives you those little vignettes of the details of what's going on. You're not just, here's a queen and there's a king and now I have an empire. It's Anne of Bohemia married to uh, the king of Portugal. 
in order to gain that kingdom. And so I wonder to myself, do I have any interest in playing here I stand anymore when I have this at my disposal? I'm not going to give it a definitive yes or no on that. But the fact that it even makes me think about that, that that says something. occurred to you is says a lot about this game and how effectively it evokes that feeling of not just dragging Europe kicking and screaming out of the Dark Ages, but also kind of the um, intense struggle between the players to pull it to their side in, in the course of doing so. And the fact that it makes, like you said, makes me think of that. I mean, that says something in and of itself. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm excited at that, at just that the game does that. So it definitely feels like an evolution for me from the original packs in the series. So there, for those unfamiliar, there's three games in the pack series. There's Pax Porfiriana, Pax Premier, designed by Cole Worley, but also developed by, by Phil. And then, obviously, we have Pax Renaissance. So I heard some people say that it feels like Pax Porfiriana and Pax Premier had a baby. And, oh, you have Pax, <laughs> Pax Renaissance. Mechanically, I get that. Thematically, I feel like it's, it's absolutely its own entity. But it definitely shows an evolution. And I love that all the rough edges have not been sanded down on this game. And if you've listened to me... For any length of time, you know how I feel rough edges in a game give a game character. Sure. And I I, I want some of those rough edges. Yeah, something to can remain. be too smooth. Right. And and we've talked about games that are in the past. I feel like this this hits a happy spot for me. Even as opaque as the game is, I don't feel like there's anything that should have been removed that that remains i feel like everything fits once you understand the game i agree with that and i say that having uh i feel fairly certain that i've not even seen all the cards in the west deck yeah no Uh, doubt you know i haven't thumbed through the cards kind of sequentially just to see what's there but in the course of play i'm pretty sure that i there's cards i've yet to see and i would agree that it has all that it needs. I've only played the base game. I've looked at the expansion, but I honestly don't feel the need to play the expansion. Maybe once I hit 20 plays, I'll bust yeah, sure. that open. And that's that's another awesome thing about the game. That says a lot. The fact that, yeah, the expansion's there when you need it, but we're a ways away from needing it. And the expansion is not just new cards. It is new mechanics, too. Uh, there's a one-shot called Apostasy that can attack uh, cards in everyone's tableaus based on having different religious icons on them. And another that can increase the cost of declaring a certain kind of victory thematically representing the uh, reduced uh, opinion within Europe for, say, a religious totalitarianism. Or for the Renaissance, for instance. I understand the nobles weren't real keen on those voting republics. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> I, I've never heard of a voted monarchy. That That's weird. In Star Wars, but that's it. Well, oh, uh, all right, fine. I, I'm no help. <laughs> <laughs> so if we haven't made it clear, there's a lot of direct and indirect interaction as well as aggressiveness in this game to where if... You want to do your own thing and have no one interact and mess with your own thing. This is not the game for you. Steer clear for this. Yeah. Or of this. And, but 
anyone that's listened to the show knows that pretty much our entire group, for the most part, really enjoys this kind of interaction, be it negative interaction, you know, that I'm fighting with you and trying to take away or tear down. Or that we're nominally allied in order to fight and take away from somebody else who clearly has more than me, so they must have too much. Right. So, no, that must end. That must end, clearly. Carthage must be destroyed. So, on a funny note, I think funny, not like funny, haha, but, oh, yeah, okay, ha, that kind of makes sense. Due to the learning curve of this game, I got to say, games like High Frontier... A lot less daunting to me ever since I've tried to learn this game and have learned this game. So I guess there's a silver lining here through the work that you have to put in to get to a proficient level in this game is the world of heavy euros and everything. Yeah, not a problem now. (laughs) You've cracked that oyster and the rest are all there waiting to be opened. Right. And that says something that when it, like I, I feel like I've reached the pinnacle of you've, weight. You've on, climbed Everest, yeah, as far as game weight goes. As far as non-war game oh, weight sure. goes. War games being on their own scale, so let's just nip that conversation at the in the bud. But as far as Euros, if you can get through and get to a proficient level in Pax Renaissance, you can play any Euro in existence, including High Frontier. I would agree. Yeah. And because and the reason I keep saying High Frontier is, you know, that has the mythology of being the hardest game out there that isn't Magic Realm, that isn't a war game, that isn't stuff like that. Or, you know, that's widely notorious. Yeah. It has that notoriety for being difficult to play. Right. And I think Pax Renaissance, rightly so, carries the same notoriety. But once you put in the time and kind of give it the time of day, um, it does actually reward that. Right. So let's talk about that then. The flip side, the the things that are on the less glowing side of this or things we don't like or that other folks listening may not like. So we've covered the rule book. I mean, daunting. Some people say impenetrable. Uh, the cost involved with just learning the game, it, it, it really is just a huge barrier to entry. And it really, yeah, it's, a pretty it's steep going to, curve. it's going to turn people off from the game. They're going to try, look at that <laughs> and close it and put it away or get rid of it. And that'd be that. Um, for me, uh, the main detractions from the game, like you said, it's a bear to learn. And in turn, it's a bear to teach. Oh boy. Is this thing hard to teach? Uh, I had to practice, practice, practice to get the teaching to where I feel only nominally competent about teaching the game just kind of on the fly without rehearsing beforehand. And so I know that that will limit the amount of plays that people can get just because somebody has to learn it. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, you got to teach it to three more people. And here's the thing on that teaching aspect is when you realize that often players aren't going to comprehend the why they're doing thing for a number of games. So if you make this like a one-off teach, like, hey, we're just going to try and sit down and play Pax Ren today without the intent of putting in multiple plays. And I'm not talking in one city. I'm talking over a relatively short period of time. It it doesn't necessarily seem worth it uh, for the time investment to under to get to that level of teaching to where you're proficient at teaching it because... It's just going to be a, a lost cause. Like if you're not willing to put in the work to understand and, and, and really comprehend the why over a number of plays, 
the effort's just not worth it. Then. Yeah, it won't be enjoyable. It won't pay off. And I get that. And maybe out there, there's a game group of super geniuses, uh, the Skylers, the Skylers of the world. And sure, y'all can sit down and play the game and just learn it out of the box and more power to you. I'm jealous of, of what their comprehension level is. I'm just not there. Um, but for all the rest of us, myself included. And me. You, you know, five, six 10, 15 plays uh, to where I feel like, yeah, I could, I'm now to the point where I feel like if I reviewed the rule book the night before, I could bust this out at a random game day. Yeah, I I agree with that. I I don't feel comfortable even having seven or eight plays in to where I could teach it, but I feel like I could, if we were to sit down and play this right after we're done recording, I feel like you and I would be competent, both of us at, at that point. Now, that said, seven, eight plays, I'm just now feeling competent in the game. No other game has me feeling as inadequate for so long, but I have enjoyed the learning curve. Many folks are not going to enjoy that. Yeah, uh, I similarly have thoroughly enjoyed the learning curve, partly because of how... Mm, how hooky the thematic parts of the game are. They get stuck in my head. They light my brain on fire and I want to play it again. Oh, and by the way, I want to get those seven rules right that I got wrong in, you know, last play. (laughs) I laugh at that because I'm like streaming this live. Terrifying. Oh my. Uh, Like, cause you know, oh, you know what you got wrong. Yeah. I'm sure there were some things we got, but actually I think you pretty much nailed it. I think that. I think in the two-player game, at the end, there was a Q&A, and one of the questions kind of uh, kind of hit uh, hit me off, off-footed, and so that one's that but, one's not right, but, but the teach itself is correct. Yeah, I, if that's the worst thing anyone can say, I think we're doing all right. Another negative, I guess, maybe, for some folks, is if you don't think the word opaque is a complimentary turn, <laughs> this is not the game for you. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's, to me, as opaque as the notorious history books about the same period of time that people try to read, want to read, and just can't. You have to be 100% vigilant of what other players are doing, or else it's probably going to be too late to Spells be able to do defeat. And that's actually exactly what happened in your my two-player game, that I realized that too late, I was like, well... Earlier in the game, you had taken an action that you couldn't fully capitalize on. And then from there, you were just that one step behind. So the last thing I got is that it can be dependent on what cards come out. And if you get too set in your ways and the cards don't cooperate, then, well, you're not going to do well. But again, that's more or less going to be a player issue than a game issue, but some Folks are going to see it as too tactical for their taste, which I think is a fair, not criticism of the game, but understanding of themselves as gamers sure. that that isn't going to be something that they like. There's something to be said for when your strategy meets the battlefield and makes contact with the enemy and what you do next. Uh, I think there's a saying, uh, I think Patton, I don't remember. I wasn't paying attention. No, uh, no battle plan. Uh survives contact with the enemy that's exactly it so yeah so i think that very much comes into play here you know what's funny we're talking about pax renaissance right now and as soon as we're done i want to bust it out and play it i know i can't 
because of the time, but I just want to. Like, yeah, you and me both. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm pissed off. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So I had a lot of fun. So when I'm prepping for these reviews, one of my favorite things to do, especially on games that there is not a universal, and let's face it, there is no game that has a universal appeal, and this very much is not one of those. I like going through reading the comments. Oh, boy. That people have on both sides of the aisle, right? And I, I like sharing them with y'all, and I this was this was no exception to that. <laughs> All right, so I just have them randomly in here, so there's no, oh, here's the positives, here's the folks that didn't dig it. And it's a little bit longer than I normally do just because, well, damn it, I had fun with this, and it's my show, so I can do that. All right, here we go. Quote, Pax Renaissance is more like a confetti popper, a very big bulging confetti popper. It's full of stuff, and it may be pretty to look at as it falls to the ground, but it really just ends up making more of a mess and turns into a chore. Huh. End quote. Hmm. The lack of predictability is terrific. The way that the game develops myriad options and then the focus changes midway through and you really have little idea on how it's all going to work out. But after all that, the best player usually wins. Yeah, I, I wish I had said that. The complex web of options is a hurdle, but it rewards the effort. Clearly, that's not for everyone, though. I think we've conveyed that pretty well as well. It's too dense, but makes up for it by being too long. <laughs> this was sheer agony to sit through, being both highly abstracted and highly detailed at the same time, which makes it difficult to teach and difficult to learn. They didn't like it. The game has some great mechanics and features, but there are too many barriers to bring Impact's Renaissance to the table for new players. Yeah. And without a significant investment of time, I'd be destroyed playing by anyone who fully grasps the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I would be destroyed if I sat down with somebody with, you know, 30 plays or the Skylers of the world. I agree. Or, you know, Cole or, or Phil, Phil or any Matt, of them. Yeah. Right. There's something about Machiavellian global political manipulation that I find deeply satisfying. <laughs> this game would be a 10 if it weren't a bear to teach to new players. But if I have a group that knows the game, I'd rather play this than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel that's very apt. All right. One last one. I, sa I saved my favorite one for the last. Completely blown away by Pax Renaissance. I boosted my Islamic empire by raising Catholic taxes on my own peasants, driving them out of Ottoman territories just to bring in more heretics to slaughter by jihad for religious dominance by turning Ottoman empire Islamic. Other ways to win, including generating democratic votes to create republics, spreading peasants around the world as a globalist, having more monarchies than others, capturing your kingdoms by marrying a queen into them, silencing or beheading others, manipulating trade routes or wars with pirates, etc. Subtle scheming and gray ambiguous options in a tiny box. I think that summed up pretty well what Pax Renaissance is. All right. Summary, sir, if you would, you, you are a guest on our show, so please, you first. Thank you so much, especially because I don't want to have to follow you. Style. The very best games possess a richness that allows players to have and express a style of play. Chess is one such game, 
and the allusion and analogy to chess within Pax Renaissance is bold and audacious on the part of Phil Eklund, but it is also fitting. More than mere strategy and tactics, it's said that one style of play displays their personality. Are you aggressive, attacking with your knights with naked force, or are you calculating, wheedling your pawns into place until the time is right to strike? As you play, the game will open up to you, the turbulent west, the more predictable east. You'll begin to see several moves ahead. How can I defend against that conspiracy? How badly does she want that coronation? How much will I pay to keep it out of her hands? Like chess, Pax Renaissance is not for everyone, but the game rewards those players who give it the time of day, or more likely, several days. But those who do will find a game that enables you to explore and express your own way to play, your very own style. And you didn't want to follow me? Child, please. <laughs> I've... This has been kicking around in my head for at least a month now. Awesome. Uh, Th that's really good. Well done. You. Well thank done. You. All right. So I had this really elegant written sum, you know, this summary written up. But honestly, I'm going to 100% completely steal what a friend of mine has written. So thank you, Jack, for what is, I think, the perfect summary of Pax Renaissance. Quote, Pax Renaissance is a game that is very much like a marriage. It requires a heavy commitment, lots of time, makes you question whether or not it's worth it, but in the <laughs> end, it gives you back exactly what you put into it. For me, it's perfect. Wow. End quote. Well done. After reading that, what kind of summary could I write up? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm going to plagiarize. No, I'm, not, I'm just stealing yeah, it. Yeah, that about so. does it. Yeah. All right. So a rating. So I'm very curious here. Now, obviously, this was a Golden Elephant Award finalist for 2016. Did not win. It was a finalist. So I'm curious what your take and your rating is on Pax Renaissance. So on the heavy cardboard one to six scale, where one is kick it to the curb and six is Hall of Fame, the end. For me, it's obvious. It's easy. Uh, I taught two games of PAX Renaissance at HeavyCon without even playing it. I played three more games uh, in the short time I was there at HeavyCon. For me, it's a six. No questions asked. So this one I, I struggled with a bit because my consideration on whether or not to give it a six came down to am I able to teach this and get this off the shelf and be able to get it to a point to where folks are going to enjoy it as much as I do. Should that come into play? I don't know the answer to that, honestly. And I've struggled with it. And I honestly, I, I don't really have a good answer. I think it should because if that's going to impact my ability to get it off the shelf, then how can we enjoy it on a regular basis? Now, you and I, Ash, or some of the other folks in our group, but not everybody yeah. is going to be able to sit down and just readily enjoy this. That one thing hmm. and that one thing only has kept it from being a six for me. So that said, it's, it's a five that wants to be a six that... If I was able to, I, I guess now I could just be like, hey, go watch the video and then we'll sit down to play. So there's that. But that was the only hesitation I had. And if you hesitate, 
by our own yeah. rules, if it's not quite, that means it ain't. So therefore, it's a five. But my God, did I want to give it a six? <laughs> let me tell you. So yeah, that is Pax Renaissance. Awesome job, Ash. Thanks Thank for you. joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for letting me teach the live streams. Uh, it's exhilarating. It's terrifying. And I loved every minute of yeah, it. Yeah, because you don't get a second take. Oh, it's, my gosh. Oh, hey, uh, thousands of people are going to see this. So enjoy. Yeah. Have fun. Here you go. Um, <laughs> but that said, uh, this is easily one of my favorite games. And I can't shut up about it if if the last hour or so is any indication. Right. So, yeah. I, I have a feeling that folks are going to want you on the show more going forward. So as long as we can get your schedule to accommodate, because this just in, you have a youngin that requires attention. I have a greyhound that requires much less attention. <laughs> he is currently sleeping behind me right now and has been the entire time. Exactly my point. Rather, right? your greyhound, not my toddler. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So seriously, Ash, I really appreciate it. Uh so yeah, that's 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 our review of Pax Renaissance. So in closing, I guess, we have a ton of new extra content that's going to be coming out both for the podcast as well as the YouTube channel. So keep an ear and I guess an eye out for it. For the podcast, it's going to be in the heavy cardboard feed. So if you subscribe to this, you're going to automatically get it. Give us feedback whether or not you are enjoying the new content. If you're Looking for the YouTube channel? Go to YouTube. Search for Heavy Cardboard. Not hard. You'll you'll be able to find it. I promise. A um, pro tip: turn on your alerts so that you get the notification when the live streams are coming up. Uh, there's now a little kind of lead time before it actually starts. Yep, and we're trying to do a weekly uh, schedule on Sundays when we're not gone to conventions. That's why we did it on Monday this week. But every Sunday, we're going to try and do a little live stream. And uh, also have it ready for that night, the upcoming schedule for that week, both for the podcast and the YouTube channel. So if that's something that interests you, keep an ear out for that. And again, your feedback is going to drive what we do on this show. So if you're enjoying the reviews, and there are thousands of you that seem to, which we greatly appreciate, so thank you. But if you enjoy the extra content, awesome. Thank you. But let us know if there's some content that's a miss. Let us know that, too, because not everything we do is going to be a home run. We understand that. That said, all the extra content that y'all are going to be getting both via the podcast as well as the YouTube channel is made available truly all because of our patrons. Without our patrons, I couldn't be doing this at least for a couple months full time. So if it's something that you enjoy and want to support, we would gladly appreciate the support over on patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard. And just to pile on top of that, um, one of the benefits of the Patreon uh, being a patron at the $5 level even is joining the Slack channel. It's one of the best ways to get in touch with Edward and Amanda uh, and also other people who are kind of within the orbit of the show to talk about the content, to make suggestions even. Uh, you kind of have a brain trust set up there with your patrons. We do have a bit of a uh, focus group, which is really, really <laughs> nice. Uh, but also it's just cool to just, it, it's like a hang, just where folks hang out. And, you know, whenever I wake up, I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of new messages that people have, have put in there. And it's just an ongoing conversation that, you know, with a couple hundred of my closest friends, that's yeah. just kind of fun and cool, right? 
And it's quality conversations, too. You know, it's the poker chip discussion, the unending poker chip discussion. It's the which 18xx is right for you and your group. Uh, there's very good and uh, I think enlightened discussions about board games in addition to gifts about elephants shaking their booties. Right. There's It runs the gamut. So yeah, uh, if you choose not to support us, no worries. You're still going to get all the content that we're providing um, here on the, on the channel, on the uh, podcast channel feed, I guess, as well as the YouTube channel. But if that's something that you want to support, we will gladly accept it. So thank you. So on behalf of Amanda and I guess myself and Ash Jackson, Thanks a lot for y'all listening and uh, look for more content in the meantime. Otherwise, the next episode will be up next Thursday. We'll catch y'all then. Thanks, everybody. Go forth and conquer Europe. Bye-bye, y'all.